Well, good morning on this snowy day. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, welcome to our Leewood campus. Uh, we're really glad you're here. I know I've talked to some of the kids. It was a great week, wasn't it? <laughs> snow day. I was out of town, and I missed snow day. I worked all week. And um, so I hear that maybe another snow day is coming. So if you're into prayer, it's a time to pray, kids. <laughs> Snowmageddon is around the corner. Well, I'd like, before my message this morning, to pray, uh, particularly for a young lady who's a part of our congregation. Uh, her name is Melina Johnson. She's in the hospital. She's very ill. And uh, I don't often do this. I have just felt very compelled for all of us to pray for her. Uh, she came back. She's a fourth grader. Um, the daughter of Tamara uh, Johnson and Jamie Johnson. And uh, she came back from Disney World with her family and got very, very ill. So I'd like you to remember to pray for Melina that God would heal her. Um, And uh, let's go to prayer before the message this morning. Father, thank you that you are the God of all comfort. Thank you that you are the God who is our healer. Lord, we pray as your people in your name that you would bring healing to Melina's body. We pray for Jamie and Tamara and her sisters, Lord, that your grace might be sufficient for them. And Lord, nudge us all to pray, to pray in one heart and one accord for this precious young lady. Grant her wholeness and healing, we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, it doesn't take us long in life to realize that, uh, you know, life's about lots of rules. I remember my daughter, Sarah, was about two years old. That's the terrific twos. Uh, She discovered for the very first time, I mean really discovered, our stereo. Um, She really was into all the lights and buttons, and Sarah pushing all the buttons, let me just say, pushed our buttons. It was like water torture, drip, 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 especially when she turned the volume up and down, up and down, up and down. And so we were all for discovery, but my bride finally said, enough. Sarah, the stereo is off limits. Well, Sarah wasn't so sure about that. And two wills began to collide. Sarah was told by her mom, Sarah, no, as she put her right hand on the volume control of the stereo. Sarah, I don't know who she got this from, by the way. Sarah refused to budge, right there, looking right at Liz. So Liz went up and moved her hand, her right hand off the stereo button, and Sarah looked at her mom and put her left hand on the volume. (laughs) Not only did Sarah do that, she looked Liz in the eye and said, no, mommy, no. You know, all of us have a lot of Sarah in us. I know she has some of her parents and probably me, I don't know, but rules are a challenge for all of us, aren't they? One of my favorite poets, and this is a real poet, this is not a joke, this is a real poet, Robert Frost, puts it this way, and I think one of the finest poems of this brilliant New Englander. The poem is entitled, Mending Walls. Let me just give you a little bit of a glance of it. Robert Frost writes, Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know, what was I walling in or walling out? And to whom was I like to give offense? 
something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. There is something within all of us that wants walls down. Because a lot of times rules and laws seem like walls. And I want to suggest to you that I don't like walls. Uh, I do quite a bit of traveling these days, not because I love it, but I find myself in a hurry. Anybody been there? And I hate red lights, especially when I'm in a hurry to get to the airport. I hate speed limits of 65 when I want to go 80. I don't like them. That may surprise you. And then when I arrive to the airport, I don't like hanging out at the satellite parking, which I tried to uncover my buried car. That's another story this week. I want to just drive right in front of the terminal and park my car right in front of the door. But there's a rule that says I can't do that. And consequences that are not jail time, but hurt my wallet. That's worse than jail time for me. (laughs) And then you've all had this experience. You walk into the airport, and there are more rules. Gosh, there are rules. Walls. Security lines that you have to get in. I hate those things. I hate those things. I just want to go on the airplane. And then... When I get in the security line and they check all that stuff, what do you have to do? I'm virtually undress. You know, take your computer out of the bag and your shoes off, like, and, and belt and all, all that stuff, right? I mean, it, it's rules, rules, rules. And then if you fly southwest, which I do often, there are more rules. There are boarding A's and B's and C's. If you're a C, good grief you want to be an A. I hate being a B. I hate that. I want to be an A. I want to be in front. I want to get on the plane, for goodness sakes. We live in a world filled with rules. Rules, rules, rules. And the number of written rules and laws are staggering. Of course, they allow a certain career called lawyering. But there are written rules everywhere. And we're supposed to abide by them. Imagine that. And not only that, there are unspoken rules. Have you noticed? Have you ever tried butting in line? I I know you wouldn't ever do that. Pastors would never do that. I think about it all the time. I do. I know this is confession time here, but have you ever tried cutting in line in a grocery store? I'm not going to go there and tell you, but you know, you would think that you murdered someone because you're dead. You're dead right there. I mean, it's like a grocery cart in the ankles and the chest. You're dead. Don't ever do that. Or cutting in line at a concert. You know, you just, I hate those long lines. Or a a basketball game. I mean, way in the back. It drives me crazy. Ever tried doing that at the Chiefs game, cutting in line? Don't do that. If you value your life. See, we live at a time where there are rules everywhere. But we're also so cotton-picking restless about rules. We have this love-hate relationship. We like rules when it hinders others from hindering us. But we don't like rules when there's no wiggle room for us. In fact, we live in a time where rules are sort of pushed back. You know, it's like we have commercials and taglines like question authority. Or, or a commercial, no rules, just right. 
So we come into this cultural context. What about God's rules? I mean, let's just be honest. What about them? Do they apply to us? Oh, really, today? Aren't they just for some primitive people in the past who needed evolutionary development orally? Are God's rules there to frustrate us or to help us flourish? See, wherever we are in our journey of faith, these questions need to be pondered for all of us. What about God's rules? Do they matter? See, the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation asserts that the creator God who made us and the road we travel on has given us rules for the road. C.S. Lewis, who uh, was an atheist for a long time, who converted to Jesus Christ and followed Christ, said it really well, as he often does. Lewis said this, we know that humans find themselves under a moral law that they did not make and cannot quite forget even when they try and which they know they ought to obey. So what are the rules of the road? The road of life. And why in the heck are they so important? That's where I'd like to go this morning. The Ten Commandments are often a familiar terrain for us. Whether we've been in church all our life, or we're just coming back to church, or we're wondering about the Christian faith. But often we don't see them in their full aura of beauty. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to press in to the Ten Commandments, just a bit, and I'd like to raise two questions. What are they, and why are they important? If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I think maybe many of you are already there. Let's set the context. In our open here journey this year, we have been following God's covenant people as they have been miraculously delivered from Egypt. Last week, we encountered a generation who just simply refused to trust God. And they ended up wandering in the wilderness, digging graves. If they had gone through the front door along the Mediterranean Sea, it would only taken them like 14 days. <laughs> but it takes them 40 years. And what we see in the biblical text is that 40 days, or 40 years, ultimately, is quite a detour. But... As we've discovered in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that God who keeps His promises is not stopped by detours. Detours are not dead ends for a God who keeps His promises. And so what we begin to see in the story is that God now prepares a new generation. And rather than leading them through the front door of the promised land, He leads them through the back door. And it's called, interesting way of describing it in antiquity, the King's Highway. Let me tell you the King's Highway is anything but for kings. A map here helps us understand because when you enter to Deuteronomy, it's sort of a combination of a travel log and a battle report as you read it and open here. And this particular map shows, you'll notice up on the left, your left, the Mediterranean Sea. That's the front door. That's the easy way to get into the promised land. That was the normal way. 
But God takes them through the back door when you see in the bottom the Red Sea. That's now the Gulf of Aqaba in uh, modern times. And you'll notice this red line takes them around the back to where they go across the Jordan to Jericho. Do you see that? So what is going on here is that God takes them on the back door through a very inhospitable and rugged terrain. You'll notice these nations, Edom and Moab, and they are divided by big rivers, the Zered and the Arnon. If you've ever gone to this part of the world, you know if you travel from Aqaba or the Red Sea up to Amman, Jordan, it is a barren place. It's like going through two different Grand Canyons, and it's a very inhospitable place. It's not a nice place at all. But this is where God takes them. And in Deuteronomy 1 through 3, you hear this story that is a part of this journey. Chapter 3 ends, though, not with a travelogue, but with a, a lament. Moses is lamenting as he is not able to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. And now as we come to chapter 4, all the way through chapter 33, 4 through 33, that's a lot of space to cover. Moses, before he dies, before he hands the baton off to Joshua, gives final instructions for all these chapters. Eugene Peterson, I think, wonderfully sets this up because Deuteronomy comes from the Greek idea of second law. The original title of the Hebrew scroll scroll were the words, kind of like what I think is one of the best movies of the year, or these words. Why? Because Deuteronomy is about the words. Eugene Peterson says this in his introduction to Deuteronomy. He says, Deuteronomy is a sermon. Actually, a series of sermons. It is the longest sermon in the Bible. Some of you are starting to feel scared right now. And maybe the longest sermon ever. Deuteronomy presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab with all Israel assembled before him preaching. It is his last sermon. When he completes it, he will leave the pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. The setting is stirring and emotion-packed. So what we need to understand in our reading and our structure and our flow is that Deuteronomy is a sermon, a long one. I find comfort in that. Maybe some of you don't because it's a lot easier giving sermons than sometimes listening to them. But this is a sermon And at the very heart, the very meat and potatoes, I hope that's not offending you if you're a vegetarian or lettuce, whatever it is, are the ten words. Yes, the ten words. We think of them as the ten commandments. And this is an apt description because the literary architecture and structure tells us they're anything but the ten suggestions. They are the ten commandments. They've already been stated before. And Moses feels the need to state them again. Now, as we enter into this, let's first look at the first question in our roadmap of expiration, and that is, what are the Ten Commandments? Now, when your Bible's open, I want you to notice that before giving the Ten Commandments, friends, in verse 6, we understand an important principle. That is, Moses roots God's law in His saving grace. This is important to understand. That God's rescue of His people then leads to an obedient response, not the other way around. The Ten Commandments following in verse 
7 on to the end, have a certain literary architecture. Commandments 1 and 4 have a vertical dimension, that is our relation with God, and the dimension of 6 or 5 through 10 is a horizontal relationship with others. Jesus, of course, knew this as a brilliant rabbi, and he summarizes in the New Testament the great commandment around these two dimensions, loving God and loving neighbor. But what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to look at the ten words or the ten commandments in a fourfold progression. That is, the flow of the architecture is first our devotion to God, our responsibility to parents, our respect for others, and the purity of one's own heart. In other words, the Ten Commandments from origination are not just about external conformity, but are about heart wholeness. So let's look briefly at them. Commandments 1 through 4 are about devotion to God. That's verses 7 through 15. In verse 7, we read this, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, the God who made us for himself will have no rivals. Commandment 2 follows this, right? A prohibition of worshiping idols. And let's remember that idols are not just bad things. They are good things that become ultimate things in our life. Like sex can become that, or reputation, or money, or religion, or food, or anything else like that. Idols are God's substitutes. Commandment 3 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that addresses the importance of reverence and honoring God. Commandment 4 in verse 12, notice, speaks of observing the Sabbath. And we heard it read. There's really a lot of detail about that. Why? Well, let's remember that Genesis and Deuteronomy are like bookends in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They are intimately connected, and Deuteronomy reflects God's creation design. On the seventh day of creation, God rested from His work, and He simply delighted in Himself and His creation, and we as His image bearers are to do the same. Jesus is now our Sabbath rest. We know that from the New Testament, not a particular day. But the principle and the person of rest are a focus for us of God-honoring worship. Now, commandment number five really deals with a responsibility to parents, and it's a hinged commandment. It is unique in its structure because now for the first time we find a promise. And I want to focus on this just a little bit. If you have your Bible open again, look at verse 16. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother as the Lord God commanded you that your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land that God is giving you. Now, I want you to notice that your word, honor there, comes from a Hebrew word that means heavyweight. This is like a heavyweight commandment. That's the idea. It suggests great esteem and value we place on our parents, and it affirms the institution of marriage and family as intrinsic to human flourishing. So kids, I know a lot of you had a good snow day this week, but let me challenge you about this commandment if you're here this morning. This text tells us we are obey our parents. Sometimes the rules are not easy to obey, but the Scriptures do not allow a lot of wiggle room here unless our parents specifically forbid us in a violation of God's specific commandments in Holy Scripture. Also, kids, you are to honor your parents. That's not just external obedience, it's heart love. But let me also talk to kids that are older, that have elderly parents. I know many of us are in that context in the season of our life. A seasoned citizen said to me, 
recently, getting old, Tom, is not for sissies. And they're right. Getting old has its blessings, but it's very hard. So let me challenge you, if you have older parents, if you're out of the house, on your own, let me challenge you with some thoughts, because this commandment is often overlooked. First of all, stay connected to them through texts, through emails, through calls, through notes, and pray for them. One of the ways we honor our elderly parents is to pray for them and to lift them up in prayer. Also, be patient with them. Be patient with them. Not only do they see things through different generational grids, not only do they have great wisdom, but life can be hard as you get older. Third, celebrate special days with them. I have to make a confession here. When I was studying this text, the Lord brought to mind a time when I forgot, when I failed to honor my mom. My mom turned 80, and it was a small little gathering of her best friends in the retirement home, and I was busy somewhere in the world or country doing something, and I missed it. I sent her flowers, but I did not go there. And to this day, I regret I didn't get on a plane and fly to be at that meeting. So there are special gatherings, special times to honor your elderly parents. Don't miss them while they're alive. Be an advocate for them for health care and other issues and love them just because. I think I mentioned this but uh, a few weeks ago, but my daughter Sarah, who's married, and her wonderful husband Marshall, this past week sent my wife again just flowers. And all it said is just because love Sarah and Marshall. That's honoring your parents. Commandment 6 through 9 captures respect for others. In other words, our rights and freedoms end where others begin. And there's very little wiggle room here. That's the nature of these. In verse 17, if you notice, if you have a Bible open, we have a commandment number six, and it begins, thou shalt not murder. Respect for others begins when we see them as God sees them, as having extraordinary value being made in the image of God. And this commandment covers, as Psalm 139 says, from the moment of conception in the womb to the tomb. We are to honor the sanctity of every human being. Verse 18, we have commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And here it is, to respect the marital vows, not only yours if you make them, but others. In verse 19, we have commandment number eight, you shall not steal. How many of you heard about the $50 million heist of diamonds in Belgium this week? Now, we often think of stealing is something like that, and that's not a good thing. But we often steal in other ways, when we steal intellectual property, when we copy music or we engage in plagiarism. We are not to steal. We are to respect what is rightfully others. In verse 20, we also see commandment 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, the responsibility of trafficking in truth, to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, is not only in a formal deposition, but a way of life for the follower of Christ. Proverbs says life and death are right here. In the hand, literally the Hebrew says, in the hand of the tongue. The last commandment is interesting to me because it's purity of heart. It addresses at heart level. It probes us at heart level. It does not allow us just to look at external conformity, but internal transformation. And that is the coveting of what our neighbor has. A bigger, newer, better house newer business, or a bigger, better church. (laughs) 
See, when we go through the Ten Commandments, I think our tendency is sort of, oh, I got that, got that, got that, got that, check, check, check. But in truth, we have all broken all ten of the commandments. I know this because I have. I've harbored idols in my heart. I've worshipped my work rather than finding Sabbath rest. I have not honored my parents. I have harbored anger. I have committed murder in my heart. I have looked lustfully. I have committed adultery in my heart. I have spun things, not told the whole truth. I have coveted other successes, fames, and fortunes. The Ten Commandments reveal our heart's sinfulness and our desperate need for a Savior. So why are the Ten Commandments so important? Let me highlight three things for our consideration this morning. First, they reveal God to us. Secondly, they teach us how to flourish, and they point us to Christ. Let's remember in our story that God is the main character of the story. And the brilliance and beauty and power of God is not only seen in the artistry of creation, but in the world He has made that reflects His moral character. C.S. Lewis says this, You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. One of the reasons we don't murder is because God has given us great intrinsic value and given great intrinsic value to every human being who bears his image. One of the reasons we don't commit adultery is because God is the one who keeps his covenant promises and is unwavering in his love and loyalty to his covenant people. One of the reasons we don't steal, y'all, is because God is the one who provides for us abundantly. And one of the reasons we don't covet is because God himself is everything we need for contentment. The Ten Commandments reveals the character of God, that you and I live in a God-bathed world, and that God-bathed world is filled with his moral goodness. This is why when we hear of horrendous things, something in our heart says this ought not to be. When a young girl is raped or abused or someone is abused, we say, that's not right. Why? Because it reflects the moral world in which we live in. God's holy Ten Commandments reveal His moral law, and they reveal who God is. But they also teach us how to flourish. God's rules are not arbitrary. They are not capricious. They reflect his character and are integral to his design for his good world. Now, you know I wrestle with speed, demons, with cars. So I just have to tell you that. You can pray for me. I may not like slowing down at a curve with that lower speed limit that seems crazy to me. But it protects me from hurling or hurdling off the cliff. And it also protects those who might be coming around the curve that I don't see. See, God's loving boundaries are designed to help us flourish as well as others. They are not there to hinder us. And if we ignore them, negative consequences often follow. This past year, I had a sad event. If you know anything about me, I get into my cars. I keep them a long time. My Silver Bullet, now called Silver Bullet 1, my Mitsubishi Galant, died. It just died. 
I couldn't do anything about it. They gave me $100 for four tires. True story. That's not false piety. That just shows how crazy I am. It died. So I went out and bought another one. This is a Toyota Corolla. Silver. Silver Bullet too. And I spent quite a bit of money on that rascal. So what did I do right away besides, you know, think I'm pretty cool because I'm driving a shiny car versus the beat-up one? I open up my glove box and look at the manual. Some of you never look at the manual. I just, I don't understand that. <laughs> what I did is I looked and I want to know how to use this thing. I've driven cars all my life. And what I looked at was the maintenance record. And one of the things I've discovered about cars that go a long ways, that they give you $100 for four tires when they're done, is you've got to keep a good maintenance. One of my best friends in life is this little maintenance sticker on the left upper corner of my windshield. Because it reminds me when my 5,000 miles is up. Now, say, 5,000, I don't need 5,000. I'm going to spend that money for oil change. I can go 20. Sure I can. But what happens? There are consequences when we step out of God's design. The Ten Commandments are like this little oil change maintenance sticker. They remind me and you every day of what it means to flourish. As you study the Ten Commandments, the greatest Jewish thinkers said we were given ten fingers for a reason. You know why? Because on each finger was impressed a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. This is like the maintenance sticker on the oil change on your windshield. Presented to us every day, you shall have no other gods before me, all the way down. So I want to challenge us with something, maybe you think this is corny, maybe you think the whole message is corny, I hope not. Is if you're older or younger, would you look at your hands each day and remember God's good commandments? Will you learn them and remember them? It's a great way to do it. The Ten Commandments are your little sticker. God given to you every day for human flourishing. Breaking God's rules eventually break us. That's the way it works. Now, 10 years ago, someone died that I miss dearly. We know him as Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I loved hearing that tune, and I won't sing it all for you, but hearing it as when our kids were younger, the afternoon when Mr. Rogers walked into his magical space, put on his sweater, put on his tennis shoes and saying, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? I've always wanted a neighbor just like you, Baldwin. You knew that. Well, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is so beautiful, and that's God's design for our neighborhood. But our neighborhoods are not like that, are they? Far from it. 
Can you imagine what our neighborhoods would be like if we all obeyed the Ten Commandments? <laughs> I'd like you just this week, think about this. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine if all of us stopped for every red light on the road. <laughs> imagine a world where the Ten Commandments were adhered to. We would, well, the police wouldn't have much to do. Uh, they may direct traffic or get kitties out of trees. I don't know, but they certainly have not as much to do. Kids would be free to play outside. Our doors would never be locked. Can you imagine going to bed at night, not locking your door? There'd be little need for prisons, no crimes. The breaking story in the nightly news, late breaking news, would be the latest Jayhawk score or the Tiger score or K-State Wildcats or whatever, right? See, Genesis and Deuteronomy must be understood together because Genesis 1 and 2, we discover God's created design, His interconnectedness, and His shalom, His peace, His wholeness. Genesis 2, sin and rebellion enter God's perfect creation design, and it is gone to smash, as Lewis says. Now we face disconnectedness and conflict and struggle, a loss of shalom, human flourishing. But then we know the story, God promises Abraham a land, seed, and blessing. His covenant people are going to have a restoration of shalom, of God's good world. And Deuteronomy's 10 words, as a new generation is prepared to go to the land, gives them a trajectory to experience shalom and human flourishing. The 10 words point us to shalom, to peace, to human flourishing. So do we know His commandments? I'm much more concerned that the commandments are on our fingertips, in our heart, in our hands, than on the walls of our schools. Do we love and obey His commandments? Psalm 119 is beautiful. It's one who finds great spoil. That means one who's got a lottery. You know, when you win a lottery, you've got to be pumped. I've always wanted to win a lottery. I miss coveting, okay? I'm sorry. But it's rejoicing as one who finds great spoil. It's like finding the lottery, the pearl of great price is what Jesus says. Do we find delight in His Word? Do we find life in His Word, His commandments? Life. Deuteronomy 8.3 says this. Just down the road of it, he says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. One of the finest little books I've been reading, I've just finished it, is by an English professor named Marilyn McIntyre. It's called Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. It has just been a delightful companion to my soul. She looks at Deuteronomy 8, and she describes the impoverishment of our time because of our drivel diet of words, but ultimately the word. And she says of Deuteronomy 8.3, she may not be a biblical scholar, but she knocks it out of the park. She says, we are quite literally nourished by God's word. I think she's right. It's one of the things I'm so excited about open here. Because each one of us, if you're part of it, are opening God's Word every day and we're allowing the Word of God to nourish us. It's like Wheaties. It's like life. God's commandments reveal Himself to us. They point the way to flourish, but ultimately they point us to Jesus Christ. The reality is that no sinful person like you and me can keep the Ten Commandments fully. No way. Do I hear an amen on that? Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, he looks to Jesus, the Messiah. He says this, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. 
After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Is that awesome? Jeremiah looks to the future and says, it's not just about rules. It's about a brand new relationship that God makes happen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That the law pointed to him all the time. In John 5.39, Jesus says these words to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, listen carefully. Jesus says this. We often jump over this. He says, if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And then he unpacks five of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments point us to Jesus and our desperate need for a Savior. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this. He describes the law of the Old Testament as a tutor, as a guide. He says, So then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. That's right, by faith alone. So the good news of the gospel to which the Ten Commandments point to is that Jesus Christ met the demands, the perfect demands of the law for us. In His substitutionary, atoning, propitiatory, or satisfying death on the cross, Jesus satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God, and He gives us a new heart. He gives us new power through the Holy Spirit, and He puts the law in our hearts. And the law is now not burdensome or hindering. It is a blessing. It is flourishing. It is joy. It is life because we know the giver of life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, when we embrace Jesus Christ, this is our theme. He says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that means the physical, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The good news is that in the gospel, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a new power to learn, to love, and obey the Ten Commandments. But our obedience to the Ten Commandments is not a meritorious checklist. Check, 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 check. No. It is a response of joyful grace in His power and in the power of the Spirit. See, we love our neighbor now not because we have to, but because we so want to. Because we are so transformed by the love of Christ and in the Ten Commandments and through the power of the Spirit, we are becoming whole. The Renovari Study Bible, I think, hits this really well. He says, we, they must, we must view the Ten Commandments this way. We must view the Ten Commandments as Christ views them. And listen to what they say. As an invitation to a greater whole or wholeness. Not wooden rules locked into a legal document of the holy life. Robert Frost was really onto something. He ends his poem, Mending Wall, with these neighborly words. He will not go behind his father's sayings. And he likes having thought of it so well. He says again, yeah, good fences make good neighbors. Good fences not only make good neighbors, They make godly Christians. 
Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would guide our hearts and minds in a response to the holiness and beauty and the life-giving nature of your holy word. For Jesus' glory and his grace, we pray. Amen.